it's easy to look at climate change as something that's a little bit distant from us if you're in a larger country and particularly if you're not near the coast but I can assure you if your feet are on the ground on one of these islands the impacts are real and they're occurring today. Even in my village uh, now the, the sea level rise the water has encroached you know into the village and uh, some of our my cousins' uh, houses, they are, some parts of it uh, are underwater during high tide. You have warmer waters and of course acidification which is uh, changing the habitats of the fish resulting in less catches, in unpredictable catches and this is made worse by the rising populations when I was growing up, there was uh, lesser cyclones and uh, much lesser frequency of intense cyclones. But now there seems to be a cyclone almost every year. So, you know, we, we dwell in this world of generalizations. We, we talk about the low-lying islands and that they will become stressed by sea level rise. Well that's just not good enough. We absolutely have the technology to do a damn sight better job and to put some numbers on this and under, to understand the timelines and to understand just, just how much time these people have. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. And in this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to virtually visit some of the most remote islands on Earth and to find out how technology is helping them to become more resilient and adapt to the effects of climate change. Island states in the Pacific, such as Fiji, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Palau and the Marshall Islands, are at the front line of global warming. Every possible effect from land loss to intense weather and coral bleaching events is happening right now. But as our guest Arthur Webb from the United Nations Development Programme noted, it is easy to think that the effects of climate change are a bit like these islands, very far away. Fiji, for example, sits deep in the Pacific Ocean, 1,770 kilometres north of New Zealand. For listeners in the UK, imagine the entire length of the country from Land's End in Cornwall to John O'Groats in Scotland and back again. Tuvalu is another, 1,180 kilometres north of Fiji. And Palau is another, 5,000 kilometres away, closer to the Philippines than to New Zealand. Not only are these island states and many others like them a very long way from major landmasses such as Europe, Australia or North America, they're very far away from each other meaning that they have developed as very unique, self-sufficient and resilient places to live, steeped in history and tradition with a deep understanding of the natural environment. But as we heard from another of our guests, Fiji resident and environmental specialist for UNDP Pacific Office and marine expert Winnie Naikotha, that natural environment is changing in ways that her ancestors could not have foreseen. Preserving the traditions of the past means harnessing the technology of the future. Well, uh, my name is Winnie uh, Nainotha. I'm uh, an indigenous Fijian. 
from Fiji of course. My village is about 40 minutes away from the city and um, I come from a traditional fisher tribe. My family uh, in the village uh, hierarchy, we are the traditional fishermen. Winnie is also a marine scientist with a PhD in conservation, a former university lecturer and is currently acting head of the Resilience and Sustainable Development Team of the UNDP in the Pacific. And uh, we have about uh, 65 projects in our team from formulation to implementation stage, from various funders, some are bilaterals directly from the countries and uh, also included are the big vertical funders for environmental protection such as the Global Environment Facility and the Green Climate Fund. These projects include using LIDAR to survey the island nation of Palau in order to create a baseline map that will allow the government to understand exactly how the island coastlines are changing under coastal erosion and climate change. It is work that builds on an earlier study done for the islands of Tuvalu which have allowed it to become the first Pacific Island nation to create a long-term coastal adaption strategy. And we will find out more about this later. But in looking to the future, it's important to understand the past. Winnie comes from what she calls a traditional fisher tribe, and she explains how these stewards of the sea were respected by the land-based warrior tribes. Each part of the island community knew what the other had to offer and would work together for their mutual benefit. Knowledge is passed down generation to generation and traditions endure. There are practices, traditional ecological knowledge practices that we do, for instance, that when we go and visit a, a warrior tribe, we take the fish and we are not allowed to eat fish in front of them and they bring us uh, pigs uh, and uh, root crops and they are not allowed to eat pigs in front of us. But things are changing for ancestors of both fisher tribes and warrior tribes. Land is no longer plentiful as seawater inundates the soil. Competition for fish has increased. The effects of climate change are taking their toll. I'm very understanding of the coastal villages that survive on the fishing. And even in my village, uh, now the, the sea level rise, the water has encroached into the village. And uh, some of our, my cousins' uh, houses, some parts of it uh, are underwater during high tide. So they have learned to survive. They build uh, longer structures. You know, the stilts are longer so that they can, and once the tide goes away, it uh, becomes dry again. There are many other effects too. You have this uh, sea level rise with the water coming in. You have warmer waters and, uh, of course, acidification, which is uh, changing the habitats of the fish and uh, there's uh, these changing habitats some of it is really resulting in less catches in unpredictable catches and this is made worse by the rising populations the weather too has changed when i was growing up there was uh, lesser cyclones and uh, 
much less uh, frequency of intense cyclones but now there seems to be a cyclone almost every year and the intensities you know have uh, increased to cyclone 7 for instance that we've uh, experienced and uh, of course a lot more flooding so yes i can say there is a difference you know the weather is so hot it's unbelievably hot and at the same time sometimes very cold it's not surprising then that Winnie is using her knowledge to do everything that she can to protect her home and other islands like it. I'm very passionate about uh, marine protected areas work and because it uh, is the livelihood not only for my people but a lot of the people in the Pacific because we are very small islands surrounded by the sea. The tropical small islands have particular vulnerabilities. Arthur Webb is both Chief Technical Advisor and a Coastal Adaption Strategist at UNDP. Alongside that, he is also a Research Fellow with the University of Wollongong in southern New South Wales, specialising in smaller islands known as atolls. He was also the lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report into the effects of climate change on small islands, and we will link to that in the show notes. Being remote, the islands are exposed to oceanic tectonic disturbances, but new pressures are having an impact. Climate change brings a whole new suite of challenges in that the changing weather patterns, tropical storms, more intense storms, the fact that so many of our shores are what we would call reef-mediated shores, so living reef-mediated shores. So that means they're, they're reliant on living reefs to mediate wave energy, to produce material for their shorelines. And we know that with climate change, not only is sea level rise um, ongoing and accelerating, but we've also got these incredibly concerning impacts to coral reefs across the world. In early June, UNESCO recommended that Australia's Great Barrier Reef be listed as being in danger. This was after a series of mass bleaching events, and it is a status that the Australian government is challenging. Arthur's real passion is around protecting the smallest of islands, the atolls, which are most at risk from climate change thanks to their small land area and a tendency to be low-lying. So most atolls that we see today have only been habitable islands for you know three to four thousand years, which is extremely young, geologically speaking. They seem a an idyllic place, and they are in so many ways. But it doesn't take much to tip the balance. The balance is well and truly tipping. But in order to predict exactly how far and how long some of these island communities have left, more data is needed. Even though the Pacific has three of the globe's four atoll nations and the vast majority of inhabited atolls, we haven't had any systematic effort to actually understand the relationship between sea level and these land masses. So, we, we dwell in this world of generalisations. We, we talk about the low-lying islands and that they will become stressed by sea level rise. Well, 
that's just not good enough. You know, we absolutely have the technology to do a website better job and to put some numbers on this and under, to understand the timelines and to understand uh, just, just how much time these people have. Because for many, time is running out. At its most basic, you have a low-laying island. The sea is gradually rising. And that island has limited capacity to respond to that type of stress. So you will literally find that gradually over time, more and more parts of the island become inundated on a daily basis because of tidal flooding. Now, at the moment, we have, we just don't have the data. <laughs> you know, centimetres count in these places, and so we just don't have quality of data to be able to tell us well, which areas of the island will start to flood first, um, which areas are higher, and that's at its most basic, but then you can start to broaden that out. Broaden it out and develop predictive modelling. Now, in order to set up modelling that's meaningful, you need high quality baselines. So you need to be able to understand the shape of the reefs, the, the depth of the reef below sea level, and the shape of the beach and the land, so that you can actually transform that wave from the reef where it's broken, across reef flats, and then over the island and understand how storms impact, because that's the whole other side of inundation threat. And indeed, it's probably the biggest one. To create the baseline, you need accurate survey data. And that's where LIDAR comes in. LIDAR is a technology that's been around for about 20 years. It uses light, uh, a laser, uh, and it, uh, it, in essence, uh, measures distance. So we, we capture the time from the pulse of light, leaves the sensor, to when it hits a target and then, uh, and then returns. Paul Seaton is Regional Director for Strategic Sales and Marketing in Fugro. The bathymetric LIDAR systems, the LIDAR systems that we're using for surveys in the Pacific, were developed uh, in Australia. Specifically for the Australian Navy, which wanted to map the oceans and the Great Barrier Reef. So we operated a, a system uh, on behalf of the Navy and we, we supplied the services to them over a, about a 20-year period. And over that time, we've continually upgraded uh, and, and developed the system. Uh, and what we found is that it's a, a very efficient and safe way of capturing a lot of uh, ocean data. It's, it's, it's something that we can use uh, from uh, an aircraft, so we're not using vessels over reef environments. It's, it's not interfering with the environment itself. Fugro has a number of systems that it can use for LiDAR surveys. The system that we've been using in the Pacific uh, is a larger system. It uses a much more powerful laser. It was designed originally for, for hydrographic surveys. So it's that powerful laser enables us to uh, capture accurate data uh, and, and maximise uh, the depth penetration. So in, in clear areas of the Pacific where, where water clarity is, uh, is good, we can get uh, up to 80 metres in, in depth. Interestingly, Fugro have different technologies for measuring the bathymetry, which is the land profile beneath the sea, and the topography, the profile of land above water along the coast, all carried on the same plane, so it's collected simultaneously. So in, in this case, on these flights, uh, we are using two pieces of kit. So we use the high-powered laser to, to give us the, the greater depth penetration in the, in, in the marine areas. Over land, we're using a, a, a topo bathy lighter, a smaller lighter system that, uh, that fires the laser at greater frequency, but with a lower power. And that gives us a very high resolution data capture over those land areas. 
Tuvalu is the first Pacific Island nation to have Fugro gather this data and develop a long-term coastal adaption strategy. Arthur says that this has enabled Tuvalu to create this critical baseline for future planning and management. You can learn more about Arthur's work in Fugro's own podcast, Planet Beyond, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Essentially, it, it, it's divided into nine main atolls, nine main communities, of which one Funafuti is the capital and has the largest proportion of the population, about two-thirds of the population on the capital. All of these islands are extremely small. All of these islands are very low-lying, and all of them are extremely sensitive to just a myriad of different stresses brought on by climate change. But the impact of these stresses, from cyclones to sea level rise, can now be modelled against an accurate representation of Tuvalu's islands, meaning they can start to predict the future based on different scenarios. So that's the sort of predictive side of it, if you like. You know, we can start to dial in, well, you know, by the year 2100, we may have an uh, an extra 0.75 metres of water to deal with. How does that translate in terms of wave impacts during that one in 50 year cyclone or one in 100 year cyclone? It's very complex work, requiring a lot of resources. But luckily with our current project in Tuvalu, um, we do have some resources to put to this. So not only are we collecting the new baselines, we're also working with SBC based in Fiji to undertake this hydrodynamic uh, modeling of wave impacts as well so that we can understand Uh, where those main vulnerabilities lay, if you like. SBC is an intergovernmental organisation of 26 Pacific states working towards sustainable Pacific development through science and innovation. The new understanding from this modelling is leading to accurate and appropriate coastal adaptation strategies. Winnie told us that in some parts of the Pacific Islands, villagers have been moved only to have to move again five years later. And moving a village is a huge undertaking, not just from a logistical perspective, but there's much complexity over land ownership and availability. It is something that is extraordinarily complex and can take years to resolve. Then you actually have the problem of getting people up out of an exposed area onto new land. How do we know which land is is, uh, safe, for example? And that's the problem. Most of these islands don't know which land will be safe to live on in the future. You need the baseline data and and the adequate assessment to see whether or not that's the case. So are there soils adequate for agriculture in this new location? Is it it steep and subject to slumping or or landslide, if you like? Is, Is it barely any higher in elevation than the land they've just moved from and so will become subject to inundation very soon? You know, there there are so many considerations. It's not simple not simple at all. But in Tuvalu, they do have that baseline data and identified a new area that will provide safe land for decades into the future. We've done some redesigning there in the type of approaches that we will be undertaking. And in Funafuti, it is indeed reclamation on the lagoon coast. It's informed by our new baselines and the wave modelling mentioned earlier. And it will provide seven point, uh, roughly 7.5 hectares of raised safe land, which has, it certainly has a design horizon up to the year 2100 at current uh, emission scenarios.
The Pacific Island nation of Palau has become the next to implement this type of surveying thanks to funding from the Japanese government. It's one of the 65 projects that Winnie mentioned earlier. So in Palau, we were, you know, we are so happy that we came across Fugro that was doing work in Tuvalu. Uh, let me just close this window. The, there's a guy cutting the grass. <laughs> when I saw the first few uh, LiDAR images from Tuvalu and I saw that it captured a crayfish in the water. You know, like, I was so amazed and I said, you know, we have to do full growth for all our islands, but we cannot afford it. But thankfully, we were able to use them for Palau. We operated there for, uh, for, for, for a couple of weeks, but the survey itself was, uh, was, was done uh, in about 16 flights. So we didn't cover all of the islands, uh, just the major ones. Palau has hundreds of islands. The exact number varies depending on the source, but Winnie says there's around 500. That, that data was captured in, in a relatively small period of time. Uh, so uh, you know, each, uh, each, each flight can capture 30 to 40 square kilometres of, uh, of, of data over survey area, depending on how far we're transiting uh, and, and the, the location of the airport. But we're, we're flying about 1,600 metres and uh, it's, a, it's a very efficient way to capture very valuable information. Once the data is captured, it has to be processed. For about every hour in which we're flying, there's about four hours of processing after that uh, to, to clean the data up, make sure we've got everything, that it all stitches together and, uh, and, and can be used. Uh, and then we hand it over to, to, to our clients. But the important thing about doing these surveys and, and working with the government of Palau uh, and the UNDP in the region is it's not just handing over the data, it's making sure that everybody understands it and can use it uh, and, uh, and, and, and know how to uh, extract from the data what they need to make the contribution that it will make. You know, it really came out that uh, a lot of our coastal villages, you know, it shows how dangerous they are living close to the sea. And it shows the, the vegetation, you know, where they could move uh, inland. And it showed the weeds, you know, of the, uh, the beaches. And, it, and uh, it, it's just so amazing. Winnie now hopes that the government will use it in the same way that Tuvalu has to develop long-term coastal adaptation strategies. This is a good survey. It, when given to government, they would be able to make informed decisions, you know, about their infrastructure, especially with the rising population on such small islands. Twelve thousand miles away, on the other side of the world, there's another island seeking to make informed decisions. So we're very much now at a point in Northern Ireland where we need to have a greater understanding of how our coastline is changing and we need to identify how best we can manage it in a sustainable way. This is Dr Joanne Hanno, a coastal geomorphologist within the Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs. We need to know the areas which are going to be most impacted by sea level rise and areas where storms are likely to cause the most harm so that we can be better prepared. 
Northern Ireland's magnificent coastline stretches for 763 kilometres, from Loch Foyle in Londonderry in the north down to Warren Point in the south. It's one of the most variable and scenic coastlines in the world and we have significant um, geological diversity ranging from our dramatic cliffs to our long sandy beaches. And this means a range of challenges to manage. We have our hard coastline such as that along the Antrim coast where we have our rocky headlands and cliffs um, which are interspersed by sand and gravel and we have the Giant's Causeway which is one of the highlights of the coast or hard rocky coast here. It's composed of interlocking basalt columns um, which resulted from volcanic activity. And along our rocky coastline we wouldn't really see much coastal erosion so there were very low rates of change. Then at the other end of the spectrum we would have our soft sedimentary coastlines which are mobile and dynamic and which would be most responsive to environmental conditions and human impacts. Over centuries and in modern times, developments have sprung up all along the coastline and Northern Ireland's strategy has been to build hard engineering to defend the line. But climate change and coastal erosion means that this strategy is becoming untenable. And over the years, the traditional response has been to build hard sea defences to protect the developments. And it's estimated that 32% of our coastline is armoured. Within that, 25% of sandy beaches are backed by sea defences, which themselves affect coastal dynamics. Hard engineered structures, which are aimed at holding the line, have had negative impacts on our coastal environment here in Northern Ireland, as coastal processes and sediment dynamics have been altered. And that natural buffering effect, which our soft sediment systems provide, um, has sometimes been lost. At the same time, just as we saw in the Pacific Islands, climate change is leading to warmer temperatures and higher sea levels. And this is resulting in coastal flooding and an increase in the rate and the extent of coastal erosion. Northern Ireland is aware that a new approach is needed and that this should be underpinned by better data. And despite the importance and value of our coastline, the nature and the scale of the issues arising from coastal change and sea level rise are currently not known and limited and insufficient baseline data is available. To fill this evidence gap, DERA, Northern Ireland's Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, commissioned the Northern Ireland Three-Dimensional Coastal Survey. And this is a high-resolution survey providing an accurate picture of the current morphology of the coast and the nearshore environment. So to build up this morphological picture, we selected various methodologies. So a topographic LIDAR survey um, was what we felt was needed, which will extend from the intertidal area to approximately 200 metres inland. And then the, for the nearshore environment, we acquired satellite-derived bathymetry data from the intertidal area out to a mapping depth of approximately 10 metres. And then as a pilot project, um, we trialled the use of bathymetric LIDAR, which is not a methodology which has been used widely um, in this part of the world before. But really, we wanted to see how successful it would be to provide that data for the dead zone, um, that area where marine vessels can't reach because of shallow water depths, um, but also where terrestrial systems don't extend down to, sometimes known as the white ribbon. The white ribbon area, or the dead zone, where much of the coastal action happens, but data is hard to gather. Fugo conducted the surveys using their rapid airborne multi-beam mapping system, and they know this area well. So the, the coastal zone is, uh, it has been 
traditionally a, a real challenge for, for, for scientists and, and people managing coastline areas because it is a different, it, it has traditionally been a, a difficult area to, to, to capture data. Uh, and there is a bit of a, a, a myth out there that that area is, is just too difficult to capture, but the LiDAR technology has changed that. And so we're able now to have a, a single data set that overlaps those, uh, the, those areas. So overall, this, this survey will be our baseline data. And then once complete, we will be able to build in this evidence base and hopefully have repeat LiDAR surveys every three to five years. And then we'll have a, you know, a much, much better understanding of how our coastline is changing. Coastal and island communities, whether in the Pacific Islands, Europe or anywhere in the world, are at the very forefront of climate change. Impacts are happening now and destroying lives and livelihoods. To create appropriate and successful adaptation strategies, more information is needed about how land is changing so that it can be combined with other data about wave effects, weather patterns and land use to create accurate models, giving a clearer idea about future impacts. So really, this baseline is the future to the management of our coastline and hopefully because of it, we'll be able to manage the coastline more sustainably and to build up its natural resilience as we're faced with climate change. So really, that what we have now will be there for future generations to enjoy. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, co-hosted by me, Alex Conacher, Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson, Series Supervision by John Young, and our own Island in the Stream is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebeed.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.